Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. So the problem with people with unrealistically high standards is that they're doing it because they think I need to achieve this goal in order to be worthy. Hmm. Self-compassion, you're unconditionally worthy. You don't need to achieve anything to be worthy. You're worthy when you fail. You're worthy when you succeed. It kind of takes that sense of evaluating your worth out of the question. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 338. Today, we're talking about fierce self-compassion with Kristen Neff. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence. Hey there, I am so glad you are here today. Hey, listen, if you haven't yet done so, quickly just hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you've you've gotten some value from this podcast in the past or you're going to get it today, do me a favor, go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. It really just helps the podcast grow more. It'll take just a minute and I really greatly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Kristen Neff, pioneer in the field of self-compassion research. This will be her second time on the Mindful Mama podcast. 
She first appeared in the Mindful Mama podcast in episode number 84 in 2017, way back when. So you can listen to that one if you'd like. But she is a professor at University of Texas, Austin. She conducted the first empirical studies on self-compassion nearly 20 years ago. And she's the author of best-selling books, Self-Compassion and Fierce Self-Compassion. We're going to talk about this idea of self-compassion. You know, why is it so much easier to be compassionate towards others than it is to be compassionate to ourselves? And we're going to also talk about the the history of why it's so difficult for women. We discuss how having compassion for oneself is really actually no different from having compassion for others. We're all worthy of compassion. It's not something to be earned, but intrinsic. So I'm going to ask you to listen for three takeaways. Ask yourself, would I say this, what I'm saying to myself, to someone I really cared about? You can listen for the fact that we need both tender self-compassion and fierce self-compassion. We're going to talk about the difference and how we can harness the energy of anger and focus it on what we're trying to achieve. So I love this conversation. I love this topic. I know that whoever you are, wherever you are, you're going to get so, so much out of it. And I got so much out of it too. So let's just do it. Let's dive in. Join me at the table as I talk to Kristen Neff. So I love, I love your new book, Fierce Self-Compassion, because as a, a feminist and as the mindfulness teacher, I really relate to, to so many of the things. And I wanted to ask you first about like kind of the idea of of, of women and self-compassion because your book is all about women and self-compassion. And you write that mm-hmm. like we would maybe assume that because women are socialized to develop qualities of warmth and care, that they're more self-compassionate than men. But the research shows the opposite, that women are less self-compassionate than men. It's, that's so sad to me. So can you tell us yeah. about this and why why this is so? Yeah. Well, also the research shows it's actually not biological sex, you know, if there is such a thing, it's actually gender role socialization. So women who are more androgynous, who identify more with the male and female gender roles, you know, in terms of traits, don't have less self-compassion. And it's really about entitlement to meet your own needs, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, but the patriarchy, you say you're a feminist, so the patriarchy, I think, intentionally socialized women to focus on meeting others' needs and not their own, because that's a really, and also not to get angry about anything, because that's a really good way to make sure that women stay subordinate, right? So basically women are socialized that we need to be a good woman. We need to be self-sacrificing. We should always focus on other people first. That's what we like in women. They're always focused on others. We don't like a woman who like says, hey, I'm really proud of something I've done. It's like, oh, we don't like that. Right, so this this gender role socialization, even it's not that men are socialized to be self-compassionate. In fact, um, they're very uncomfortable with self-compassion. They don't show up at my workshops, <clears throat> but they are socialized to feel that their needs are worthy of being met. Mm-hmm. And women are socialized to feel that they should always be focused on others. And that's why they have slightly less levels of self-compassion, even though they have much higher levels of compassion for others than men do. So with women, it's all about the difference between how you treat yourself and others. It's so fascinating because kind of what I was, I've sort of been led to believe is that kind of like what what we may have more on the inside, right? We may express more on the outside, right? So you would think in some ways that that 
I mean, and is, and maybe that's so, maybe that can be a reason for women to practice some more self-compassion, right? So that it can be more self-compassionate on the outside, but, but there's a real dichotomy between what we're, we're <laughs> feeling for others and what we're feeling for ourselves, you're saying. Yeah. So there, there is for many people, right? So if you just, for instance, if you could college undergraduates, there's almost no link between how compassionate they are to themselves and others, but it's all explained by the fact that there are many, many people who are kind, caring, loving to others and treat themselves like crap. It's not the case that you get people who are like really self-compassionate and aren't compassionate to others. So mm. basically we're, almost everyone is more compassionate to others than they are to themselves. Some people are kind of equally compassionate, right? Um, and, and with age, the discrepancy gets a little less. Um, but what we do know about the research, it's not like they aren't related at all, because when you train to be more self-compassionate, you actually increase in compassion for others. But this is a really big thing. It allows you to sustain giving to compassion for others without burning out. So if you just give and give and give and never turn the lens of compassion inward, well, you can, you can kind of get away with it for a while, but eventually your cup will run dry. Yeah. So people who are, who, especially who learn to be more self-compassionate, are less likely to burn out from being a caregiver for others. And you look at this, you look at this from the lens of like in this book, from the lens of like our, our social historical kind of status. And I've, I've thought about this before, like at some point, you know, like women were, you know, considered property, you know, and, and so it's, it was important for us to just be like the, you know, if you cared for others, if you took care of children and you took care of the men, that was your value. That was your value. Right. And so you learned to downplay your own needs and to like, you might, you might meet the needs of your husband or your children, their needs are more important than our own. Right. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of women have trouble with self-compassion because they're afraid it's selfish. Yes. Other people won't like them if they draw a boundary or meet their own needs, you know, and yeah. so women have to be aware, we have to be aware of our socialization so that we don't fall prey to the, the system that was actually it was put in place to reinforce inequality. We can't forget that. This isn't accidental, right? It happened on purpose. Again, so women were, were considered property. Her whole place in life was to support her man. Um, that was her value in society because she had less value in society than men did. And so really self-compassion is, I think, is a radical feminist act. It's not saying my needs are more important than those of other people, but it's saying they're equally important. I count too. Uh, and also, for instance, the Me Too movement, I completely see as a self-compassion movement. It's women saying, uh-uh, you're not going to harm me anymore. I'm going to have compassion for myself. Compassion means concern with the alleviation of suffering. No, I'm not going to let you continue to harm me. I'm going to stand up and protect myself to help alleviate my suffering. Um, and that's, that, that kind of fierce energy is also a really important part of compassion. That, and unfortunately, the fierceness is, has been, people try to socialize us out of it. We don't like angry women. Women are supposed to be nice and sweet and compliant. You know, and if a woman gets angry, they call her lots of nasty names. And so self-compassion says, you know, I'm sorry if you don't like it but my needs are important and I'm going to serve them. Yeah. Simple yes. as that. <laughs> Amen. I love it. I love it. So, I mean, I was going to ask you about anger because the, yeah, I mean, this all like for me ties so personally in because like I felt all this 
I felt like uh, aggression and frustration. And that was as a young parent. And I really, that was one of the things that really led me to a mindfulness practice, but I also worked on it it out very uh, consciously in, in paintings of predators, yeah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Pred predator beast women. And uh -huh. it was really yeah. interested in the idea of anger. And this idea for me, I guess for me personally, was this idea that like, I felt like I had this anger, but I also felt like the world is telling me there's something wrong with me for having this anger. Yet we all have yeah. anger. And these predators that I painted, like they have aggression, but they have no, they have no moral qualms about, about their aggression to go hunt and eat their food. You know what I mean? Like, but yet we yeah. have this, like, we have this, we, I mean, a lot of the people I work with would like to just erase the, the anger out, out of them. And you write a whole chapter yeah. about anger that I think is really fascinating here. Yeah. So anger, I mean, often predators don't necessarily feel yeah, angry. They're not angry. Yeah, well, I the know. person who feels angry is mama bear. Like, you, yeah. you know, you, if I wanted to make you angry, I would attack your child. You'd be, you'd be ferocious. You would turn into, again, mama bear. That's why I, I call yeah. it mama bear self-compassion. And so anger, it just depends what is it aimed at? Is it aimed at preventing suffering or is it causing suffering it's very mm. easy i mean it's not easy to do but it's easy to distinguish so anger is productive and constructive but it's aimed at like standing up for yourself um drawing boundaries it focuses you it gives you energy it suppresses the fear response right it's mm -hmm. very very helpful when you're trying to reduce suffering or protect people or prevent harm Mm. Unfortunately, because anger, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tricky emotion, I'm not going to lie, and it can mm -hmm. very easily, our sense of self starts gets sneaking in there, and it starts being ego defensive, and what you insulted me, and then you go after the person personally, so instead of preventing harm, you start harming others be out of your anger, mm. and that's when it start, starts being really um, destructive, and it, it can be very destructive, so it's not like we shouldn't worry about anger, but we, but here's the thing. So I naturally, I, I have a very fairly quick anger fuse, despite all my years of meditation. That's just, <laughs> if you met my mother, you'd understand. It's just, it's just inborn, right? And I used to be slightly ashamed of it. Well, it also would get me trouble in trouble because sometimes it would come out inappropriately and actually harm people. And I felt bad and I apologized. But I realized the energy that fuels this anger is the same fiery energy that's led me to accomplish what I've accomplished in life and to you know, do stuff with my son. And it's, it's the energy itself is neutral. The energy itself actually can be very, very helpful. So instead of focusing on somehow blaming the energy or saying we shouldn't have this mm -hmm. energy, we need to harness the energy and focus on what ends is it achieving, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, can, it can do a lot of good in the world. Again, look at Black Lives Matter movement or, um, you know, the Me Too movement. If we didn't, if the people weren't angry, they would just still be like, oh, well, that's just the way things are. You know, As I, so I talk about tenderness and fierceness in the book. Tenderness is the healing that comes from accepting both ourselves and maybe the fact that life is imperfect. And fierceness is, is the energy of um, taking action to either protect ourselves or make changes in ourselves or others or the situation. To alleviate suffering and we need both it's like yin and yang one without the other is incomplete and imbalanced <clears throat> mm, sometimes yeah. meditators can fall into i mean not the really good ones but sometimes you see it fall into this trap of thinking it's all about peaceful equanimity acceptance when in fact it's equally about making change to help alleviate suffering mm. it's both not either or I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. 
This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And the season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I, I love, I love that answer because it's, it's true. Like we want to have, we want to have some, you know, we want to have, a, we'd love to have a lot of that, more of that energy of equanimity and peace and all of that. But, but yeah, we've got to make, take that, that energy and harness it to make change in the world as well. Um, right. I love, I love that. I mean, you talk about how you, you the different sort of levels of, um, of self-compassion and the way our patriarchal cultures have, uh, have, um, you know, have affected women in, in different, in different cultures, which I think is really interesting. You, you did, um, you did research in India about this, right? And so I'd love yeah, to hear actually, a little bit. Like in my dissertation research. Yeah, yeah. About, about how, you know, how people think about their, again, their personal progress, what rights do they have? How, how important are their own needs versus meeting other people's needs? I was really surprised because India is pretty patriarchal. There's a very long, heavy history of, you know, um, basically female subordination. And the woman I met, I mean, Indian woman, they are not cowed. They are strong. They are assertive. They, I thought they would say, oh yeah, men's, you know, men's needs are more important. They said, no, they aren't more important. The woman should be able to get her needs met, but she probably won't because here's, so it's like the weight of Indian culture is so heavy that they realized they, they, had, they were limited in what they could do. And so they had to work within the system, so to speak. But it's not, they didn't actually believe the system was fair. That's the thing that surprised me. I thought, oh, they've been enculturated. They think it's fair. Uh-uh, these women thought for themselves. They knew it wasn't fair. But because they felt it was just too big, so to speak, to change directly, they just kind of had to work with what was. So it's really interesting to see that. Um, so, so impressed. It's really, really strong, amazing Indian woman I met. It was great. 
That's so cool. And so what are some of the ways I, sometimes I think people like we're, we're kind of in the soup of our culture so much that we can't see it. Right. And so I'm wondering, like, what are some of the ways that you identify that women in, in Western culture and like the U S and in Canada and England, maybe suppress themselves, uh, in ways that they don't even realize, uh, do you, well, I I think the number, I think the number one, one the one number well, there's a, there's a few ways actually, but one a really important one is um, because it's so subtle. This idea that what makes people like us or not like us. Mm. People like us when we say yes. People don't like us when we say no. People like us when we're sweet and okay, that's fine. You know, acquiescent. People don't like us when we're like angrier. That's not okay. <laughs> And so this subtly shapes us, right, in terms of all our interactions, and not just with men, with 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 their families, other other you know other people. And so what self compassion is it's a, it's a way to say, wait a second, my needs count too. Again, not more than, but also, my needs count too. What is it that I need in this situation? You know, what's authentically true for me? And actually, maybe what I need to do is say no. And it may actually be the case that someone doesn't like it when I say no. And self-compassion gives you the ability to say, you know, maybe that person won't like me quite as much, but I like me, right? I care about me. I'm actually the the one who has got responsible, who's responsible for my own happiness. And so it really gives you a freedom of not being so dependent on other people's opinions of you to make choices in your life. Uh, so it's really linked to authenticity, autonomy, the ability to um, follow your dreams, do what you think what you think is right, um, and to say no. Your own approval. My mother gave me a great lesson in this recently at Thanksgiving. Um, she has passed Thanksgiving duties off to my brother, um, and I I mentioned that, and I think she she. Uh, I, I mentioned it pretty unskillfully. I'll, I'll admit that she passed it off to my brother and, and she, she talked to me about it after and said, you know, I'm practicing, you know, what you preach. I'm holding boundary. I'm, I'm, I'm saying no, because this is better for me. And I now feel like, well, thank you, mom, for that role modeling of how to hold a healthy boundary for yourself and what's better, what's better for you. Even though, even if everybody doesn't, it's not like the the number one choice for like everybody in the family, it's, it was right for her. And so I appreciate that now. And again, so, so what the research shows is it's not like, you know, you're selfish. You only put your own needs first, but you don't subordinate. You're always about compromise. How can we, my needs, everyone's needs are important. How can we try to come up with a solution that as much as possible meets everyone's needs? So it's just, it's just that you don't, you don't exclude yourself in the circle of compassion, but you don't say like my way or the highway either. It's, it's really this balanced stance. So as people start to realize that, or women start to realize that we're not meeting her own needs and we're support subordinating our, you know, say a woman's realizing I'm subordinating myself to other people. Do, do people often like swing in that direction of like, forget all you, I'm gonna, you know, kind of go to, do we, do we go to extremes often as we, we, we're trying to get to that balance? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I'd be honest, we don't really have research on that, but usually what I kind of just observe in, in teaching people about this is usually not right. So usually the people, at least the type of women who come to my workshops are caring, they love their partners, they love their families, you know, they're committed to their jobs. 
it's really more about how do I find balance, not like screw you, right? <laughs> um, but you have to deal with the fear. So this is why tender and fierce self-compassion, they go hand in hand. So the fierce self-compassion is the one that says, you know, I really need to draw a boundary. I, I'm afraid they may reject me, but this is really important. I need to at least speak, say my piece. But then the tender self-compassion is the part that can like hold the fear. I'm really frightened, or maybe I feel ashamed, or all those all those cultural messages may come up. And so you, we need to be able to hold with tenderness. It's kind of like a soft, nurturing mother. That's a tender self-compassion. We need to be able to hold with tenderness our pain, our fear, our shame, our feelings of self-doubt. At the same time that with this kind of fierce mama bear energy, we are able to, you know, try to do what's right for ourselves and others. Mm. All right. Tender. tender imagine imagine if a mother was only one way. Imagine if, you know, you're mindful mama, right? Imagine if a mother was only about soothing and then someone like tries to take your child and you're like, oh, please don't. <laughs> yes, you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't do that. On the other hand, if you're just about like being fierce, that's not good for anyone either. So you, you really need both yeah. enough to be context appropriate and ideally integrated. You know, Joan Halifax, you know, has this great line, I'm sure you've heard, strong back, soft front. So it's both simultaneously, we hold ourselves tall, but we aren't rigid and closed. We aren't aggressive, we aren't hostile. We're tall, but we're also soft in the sense that we can, we can do both simultaneously. And by the way, it is tricky, I'm not gonna lie. I get it wrong all the time. But here's the thing, at least I do try. <laughs> and then when you fall off, you fall off the wagon, so to speak, you just get right back up again. Mm -hmm. because so you're self-compassionate like it, you, you aren't giving yourself a hard landing when you fall so you can start exactly. again more easily that's yes. right so and so again the goal the, the the purpose is not to get it right but simply to open your heart and if your heart's open then you can it's okay to get it wrong we can learn from that okay i see oh i see yeah, that was not quite right well let me try again it's really a process as opposed to you know i got it down and now i'm perfect like good luck with that one <laughs> yeah Pro progress not perfection yeah. so for the for the listener who's saying all right this sounds good maybe i need to practice this let's talk about some of the process how do we how do we shift from that harsh inner voice how do we shift from like condemning ourselves to becoming more self-compassionate yeah, well, so luckily we have a really, most of us have a really good template for compassion and that's how we treat our close friends. Friendships are even better than family because family, like because they're blood relations, you can kind of get away with maybe not being so <laughs> compassionate. Or also, you know, it's easier to be compassionate to people where, where we aren't personally threatened. Like if your child or your spouse loses their job, you might feel threatened and you might go into like freak out mode and not act at your best. Whereas if your friend loses his or her job, you're, you know, you're going to be less personally threatened. So you're more able to really draw on those resources of kindness and warmth and support. So most of us have some template of what to say, how to say it. So a very easy thing to do is, is to ask yourself, you know, would I say this, what I'm saying to myself in this tone of voice to someone I really cared about? You know, what, do I think that would help? You know, usually the answer is no. <laughs> what would I say? You know, especially if my, maybe you know, sometimes you don't say everything you think, but let's say my friend asked me, please, the honest truth, what do you really think? You hopefully say it with kindness in a constructive manner, even if there was some change that was needed. And that kind of gives you a template for how to relate to yourself. Okay, it's not rocket science. We already, we already know how to do it, most of us. It's just we aren't experienced in doing it with ourselves. We have to make this U-turn. 
Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. And it probably feels extraordinarily awkward at first if it we're used to being hard on ourselves. It does, isn't it ironic that it feels more comfortable to call ourselves mean, mean, nasty names? But, you know, so it feels a little awkward. You just kind of accept that. Okay. After a while, it stops feeling less awkward. You know, it starts feeling normal. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's not like positive thinking. You aren't saying, oh, everything's wonderful. You're wonderful. Because maybe that's not the case. Maybe things are horrible. Maybe you did something that was really mean and you need to apologize. But just because you did something mean doesn't mean that you're mean. Just because you did mm-hmm. something horrible doesn't mean that you're horrible, mm-hmm. right? So it's really, it's, um, it kind of can very, see very clearly actions and behaviors that are helpful or harmful. And it gives you the safety to own up to when you've done something harmful. Because again, just because I've done something harmful doesn't mean that I am somehow bad. I'm just a human being doing the best they can moment to moment, trying to learn from my failures, you know, going through life with hopefully some kindness and support for myself and others. Yeah, we so. are worthy, you know, you were own, each worthy of our own su- support and affection for ourselves just as much as anybody else's. Exactly. We know when, when a baby's born, we don't say, okay, once you graduate college, then you'll be worthy of some kindness and compassion, right? <laughs> it's intrinsic. It's intrinsic mm-hmm. to all humans. So, um, and ironically, often we um, give a lot of other people compassion, but we somehow think that we aren't human. And if we start treating ourselves as not human, think of all those, the barriers that sets, sets up between ourselves and others and all the social comparison and kind of feelings of inadequacy, which really don't help anyone. It's actually quite self-focused as well. <laughs> I hate to say it, but when you're lost in shame, you aren't really thinking about other people very much. Yeah, I guess that is self-focus. I mean, self-centered in a certain way. I mean, in the sense, that you're, yeah, you're, you're pointing really to that. On, yeah. That, so that, that comment. I, 
I should have been able to get it right. I'm not human. I should have been able to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a chronic, our, our, all of, we all have, it's like that sort of chronic obsession with our own individuality in some ways. And at least in the United States, I think we've got that. Well, I think it's pretty universal, but ironically, self-compassion lessens the sense of separate self because compassion by its very nature is connected stance and recognizes interdependence and humanity and the fact that cause a lot of causes and conditions come together to lead us to act as we do. And so the more you honor compassion, the less you're thinking of yourself as an agent who should be perfect and, you know, needs to be beat up if they don't get it right or somehow everyone else in the world is living a problem-free life and it's just me who's made a mistake or it's just me who's struggling, which is a complete fallacy. Mm -hmm. So self-compassion reminds us of reality, really. A lot of us were taught these ways of thinking, like this kind of achievement orientation and then and then for women you know we have to be perfect you know these ideas that we have to like do everything perfectly and look good doing it and all that we were kind of taught that from like our family or our culture and all of that and so I'm wondering for you for you Kristen like did did you have have that some of yourself I know a lot of academics do have, Mm -hmm. have have that achievement thing and also like I mean at least I think for, I think for me anyway, I found it helpful to have a process of like forgiveness and understanding for those who did not know what they were doing when they maybe planted some of these things into, in in my, in my upbringing, culturation, et cetera. And I'm wondering if if you went through any of those processes yourself. Um, Actually, to be honest, not so much myself. I wasn't a really harsh self-critic. I just, before I found self-compassion, it had just never even dawned on me. <laughs> I never even, wow, you could be intentionally kind of supportive to yourself. What would that look like? And then when I learned about it, I, I tried being that way and I was just blown away by the big difference it made. Um, now, I wasn't a perfectionist, but I have very high standards. And a lot of people are confused. They think they confuse having high standards with having to be perfect. So mm-hmm. for instance, we teach self-compassion to high-level athletes in college, right? Now they, they need to be at the top of their game. But ironically, if, if, you're, if, you're, um, if you start confusing your performance with yourself, and then you, let's say you miss a shot in a game and you start blaming yourself and like getting, getting down on yourself, well then first of all, you're gonna unravel and you're more likely to lose the game. Um, but also, you know, just because you missed a shot doesn't mean that you are bad. So it's kind of separating your worth as a person from your performance. So, so the problem with people with unrealistically high standards is that they're doing it because they think I need to achieve this goal in order to be worthy. Mm. With self-compassion, you're unconditionally worthy. You don't need mm. to achieve anything to be worthy. You're worthy when you fail. You're worthy when you succeed. It kind of takes that sense of evaluating your worth out of the question. Self-esteem is like an evaluation of self-worth. Self, self-compassion just takes that out of the picture. But you may or may not have really high performance standards, but the difference is if you do have high performance standards, it's because it's important to you, right? Mm-hmm. So an athlete, maybe they've trained their whole life and they want to be the very best. Well, maybe if you aren't a professional athlete, you know, maybe once you let go of thinking that you have to be a certain way in order to be worthy, you realize actually this is good enough, you know? So it's kind of like, why are, why are you aiming for those high standards? Are you, are you doing it because you care, because you have dreams, because you want to be the best you can be? Or are you doing it because you think you aren't worthy unless you achieve your goals? 
Right. So self-compassion, the research shows there's no link to performance standards. Some people have really high ones, some people are like okay with something else, just depending on what's truly important to them. Uh, it certainly doesn't lower your standards. So, so not some, the athletes we talk to, man. They 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 like it because it helps them be at their best. That's awesome. I love that it it doesn't lower your standards. I mean, I think that's some for you, dear listener. I think that's some Kristen's inviting you into some powerful introspection there about what are, you know, what are my motives? You know, is it, is it a feeling of lack of worthiness that comes from that? And then as if it is that we can practice even awkwardly at first, some in giving ourselves some kindness in, in that moment, if we discover there is that feeling underneath it all. That's right. That, that it's an intrinsic feeling of worth just, you know, and all you've got to do to be worthy of compassion is to be a flawed human being who suffers. So if you pass that hurdle, which you probably do, you you know, you can check that box. Right. So um, again, you don't really have to earn the right to compassion. It's, it's an intrinsic part of being a human being. And, And 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 when you start giving it to yourself, you're actually less dependent on getting it from others. It's nice when other people can give it to you, absolutely. But if for whatever reason they aren't able to, you aren't devastated. You aren't, you aren't like, you aren't rudderless because you could give that, you give that to yourself. I love this. It's so, so powerful. So I know that the listener, you, you probably wondering, okay, this is amazing. I love this. I want this self-compassion. We're going to practice this. And how do I teach it to my kids? What is the best way for us to pass some of this powerful wisdom to our children, to the next generation? The first thing you need to do is start practicing it yourself. So maybe you're compassionate to your kids, but if you drop a glass and you say, oh, I'm such an idiot. You're modeling for your kid that that's the appropriate way to respond to mistakes. So um, there's two ways, there's two reasons why it's important to embody it. One is modeling. So the more you can model self-compassion out loud, verbally, the better, right? Because there's actually research that shows one of the ways we learn these dialogues is by observing them in others. Um, But also because of our whole mirror neuron system. So as human beings, we've got special mirror neurons. We've got, um, the brain has these empathic abilities we're able to feel what other people are feeling, even if they aren't saying anything. It's actually, it's not woo-woo. The brain is actually constructed this way. And especially parents and kids who are so connected. So um, one of the ways you can help your children be self-compassionate is uh, you when you give yourself compassion, just like you can get the stress. If your kid's stressed, do you feel stressed? You pick up their stress, do you feel stressed? Well, if you're compassionate, your kid gets some of your compassion. So I'll give you an example. So my son, Rowan, he's autistic, right? Um, and autistic kids actually have a lot of empathy. They have trouble perspective taking, but they're very sensitive to the emotions of others, right? Which is partly why they withdraw. But so we are really close. We're still very close. Um, and what I would find was that, uh, you know, let's say in, in the early days, he used to have a lot of tantrums. Um, he was pretty challenging when he was younger. And if I would get frustrated, or, or just like blame myself or just, you know, really get um, really distressed without tending to my needs, he would get more distressed, right? So if I got angry or frustrated or felt like, oh, it's because I'm a bad parent or whatever it was, he would feel it and his behavior, he'd become more distressed. But if I could give myself compassion for like saying, this is so hard, I don't know how to deal with this. I feel, you know, oh, oh poor thing. You know, it's like be warm and kind and loving to myself he would calm down, right? So what you embody 
is what you bring into every other person in your life. So another way to help your kids have self-compassion is to be a compassionate presence, right? And it's not just compassionate for them, it's also compassionate for yourself. So those are two ways, but then there's also, then there's, the, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about directly? Well, one of the <laughs> easiest ways to talk to kids about compassion is the idea of friendship. Because by about seven, they're learning what it means to be a good friend. And so pretty early on, they get the idea that, you know, did you say that to a friend or, you know, are you being a good friend to yourself? And, you know, um, what, what would you say to your friend? And those kind of ways of talking about it are pretty easily understandable. Um, so for instance, we have, we have um, a program for teens and they absolutely love it. They're desperate for it because they feel so alone and isolated. So having tools that remind them that they aren't alone and they're part of this larger human community are, are really, really effective with this so beautiful. Uh, there it is. It's it's amazing. So when when your when your son was having tantrums when he was young and and you were offered what were were there any other ways that you offered yourself compassion? Because I know uh, uh, there are plenty of listeners who may be in the same boat and may feel overwhelmed and alone and frustrated with a, a kid with special needs or just a highly sensitive kid. Right. Yeah. Well, so we've got, we've got a ton of practices. So we've developed a whole plethora of them in the mindful self-compassion program and the mindful self-compassion workbook. I'm not necessarily selling it, but really just for information, you can, you, all the practices are there. And so different things work for different people. But so one is just, again, like I say, imagining how you would treat a friend. Another very useful one is called the self-compassion break. So self-compassion is actually composed of three elements. It's not just the kindness. Um, there's also mindfulness and a sense of common humanity, right? So the mindfulness is essential. If we don't open to the pain, if we ignore it, or we just try to fight it, we aren't going to be able to give ourselves compassion. So we, we need to be able to turn toward our discomfort instead of immediately trying to make it go away, turn toward it, um, you know, re respond with kindness, you know, oh, that hurts. I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? That sense of wanting to help. And then also common humanity. Remember, compassion is um, a connected stance. It's about remembering that you know, everyone struggles. Some people more than others. Yes, absolutely. But there's nothing wrong with me for making a mistake. There's nothing abnormal about me for having a struggle in my life. You know, I'm not alone. Like really, literally, I'm not alone. So the self-compassion breaks, you just bring these three elements in. This is really hard right now. Turning toward it instead of trying to escape it. Difficulty, you know, it's, it's part of life. It's part of being a human. It's, I'm not alone. It's normal. Just reminding yourself. You know it logically, but we forget it. So reminding yourself of that. And then some words of kindness. And also maybe some uh, touch is also a really powerful way to convey kindness. Hand on heart or maybe your face or a little hug or just holding your hand. Physical touch. Again, we're also programmed by evolution to respond to touch as a signal of care. So those are some of the ways. Very effective, very easy. You don't have to meditate for half an hour. It helps. Meditation is good. It really is, but it's not necessary to learn self-compassion. And I'm thinking about this idea of fierce self-compassion includes like meeting our needs, right? And understanding yes. that meeting our needs for for sleep, for, for for friends, for healthy food, for maybe breaks and things like that are are also a, a piece of this self-compassion fierce self-compassion right, right. practice Dry boundaries speaking up standing up for yourself motivating change so on my website which is at selfcompassion.org i've got a lot of 
free guided practices. And I've got a whole page on fierce self-compassion and especially practices designed to engender that fierce quality uh, and also the tender quality. So. Kristen, this has been so wonderful to talk to you about this. I really, really have to say, I totally enjoyed Fear Self-Compassion. If you are interested in these issues, I think that uh, I think that you'll find it really fascinating, dear listeners. So I encourage you to get a copy of Fear Self-Compassion. It's a fabulous book for you to pass around your friendship circle. I gave one copy to a friend of mine already. So um so go and get it. And then where can people find out more about you, Kristen, and what you're doing? Yeah, so again, just my website. If you just, you can type self-compassion any which way. I got an early, all Google algorithms linked <laughs> to me. So you'll find my website. It'll be first page that comes up. So you can just go there and explore. I've got research. I have guided practices. I have videos. Um, there's also really importantly a link to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is really the training arm of what I do. I developed it with um, Chris Germer, my, my colleague who developed the MSC program. So you can take online training. You can take the full um, eight-week course online. So training is readily available if you want to take this further. Thank you for, again, for coming on. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing and sharing it in such an accessible voice and with fierceness and tenderness in the way that you do. I, I'm really grateful for your work and it's made a huge impact on my life and what I do. And I know for so many others. So thank you, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you, Hunter. I love everything that Kristen now has to say. This idea of pure self-compassion is so needed, right? We need this so desperately. And, you know, I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm working on my second book. I have a new book contract with my publisher, New Harbinger, and this piece about self-compassion is so, so important. It's definitely getting in there. Actually, it's something fun I'm doing with the Mindful Parenting members is that I'm reading some of the drafts, the, the first drafts of the chapters as they come out in the uh, live in the Mindful Parenting members only group. So very cool, very cool thing that's happening. So a new book, yay, I'm so excited. Anyway, but this is, and Kristen's work really, really inspires me so, so much in this and all of this effort and everything I do with this. Hey, listen, if you have gotten something out of this episode, let me know. I'd love to love to know on Instagram, take a screenshot of what you're listening to, put it in your Instagram stories, tag me at mindful mama mentor. Let me know your takeaways. I would love, love, love to know. And of course, make sure you're subscribed and you've left that Apple podcast rating and and uh, review it means so so much it just takes a minute so yeah so thank you thank you for being here i hope this has helped you i can't wait to see your takeaways and your ahas please do share them with me and i'm so glad to connect with you and i can't wait to connect with you again next week thank you thank you so much for listening my friend namaste Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. 
but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.